Good afternoon. This is Jim Keeney, a senior associate here with the Labor and Employment Team at Sandberg Phoenix. This is episode seven of our Labor and Employment podcast series covering the latest legal developments and updates. In today's episode, I will be discussing an opinion issued this week by the Missouri Court of Appeals for the Eastern District that held that the Missouri's relatively new whistleblower law protects employees who report unlawful acts of other employees. Some background and history will be helpful to understand the significance of this week's decision. Missouri's new whistleblower law is known as the Whistleblower Protection Act. It went into effect in August 2017 at the same time that the Missouri legislature significantly amended the Missouri Human Rights Act to make it more difficult to bring employment discrimination lawsuits. Prior to that time, Missouri courts began to recognize whistleblower-like claims, which were commonly referred to as claims based upon public policy exceptions to the at-will employment doctrine. Now, stepping back, Missouri, like nearly every other state, is an at-will employment state, meaning here employees can be fired for any reason or no reason, as long as it is not an unlawful reason. And there are federal and state statutes like Title VII and the Missouri Human Rights Act that specify that it is illegal to fire someone based on their race, sex, religion, and other enumerated protected categories. But in 1985, a Missouri Court of Appeals first recognized that these unlawful reasons may not necessarily be limited to these types of protected categories in the employment context under federal and state laws. So in Boyle v. Vista Eyewear, Inc., the Missouri Court of Appeals held that employees can sue employers for wrongful termination where an employer has discharged an at-will employee because that employee refused to violate the law or any well-established and clear mandate of public policy as expressed in the Constitution, statutes, and regulations, or because the employee reported to his superiors or to public authorities serious misconduct that constitutes violation of the law or of such policy. So although it effectively recognized new causes of action, the Boyle court described this exception as narrow. Nonetheless, after Boyle, Missouri courts began to apply this public policy exception to at-will employment in a wide variety of cases in varying ways with varying results. That takes us to 2010 when the Missouri Supreme Court finally weighed in and formally recognized the cause of action for the first time. The Missouri Missouri Supreme Court did so by issuing opinions in a trio of cases that reached different conclusions as to whether such a cause of action existed under the facts of those cases. These cases are Fleshner, Margiota, and Keveny. In Fleshner, the court held that an employee need only show that whistleblowing was a contributing factor as opposed to the motivating factor in the termination. In Margiota, the court held that an employee must report a sufficiently specific or clear violation of law or act prohibited by law and not a mere belief that such a violation or act occurred. In Keveny, the court held that both at-will employees and contract employees can make these wrongful discharge claims in violation of public policy. So although the Missouri Supreme Court weighed in on these issues and and recognized formally this type of claim, it did not obviously resolve all issues related to them. Missouri courts continue to vary quite a bit in their treatment of these claims, especially with respect to questions such as, for example, 
how specific does a law need to be with regard to prohibiting the reported conduct? And must an employee actually prove the conduct and not just report it in terms of demonstrating a violation? So that takes us to 2017. And that's when the Missouri legislature stepped in and passed the Whistleblower Protection Act. Overall, the WPA limited these claims more than it expanded them and did so in a variety of ways. First, in terms of remedies, employers, employees can only recover back pay and reimbursement of medical expenses absent a clear and convincing showing of outrageous conduct, in which case there may be liquidated damages available. But punitive damages and other forms of damages are prohibited by this term. Second, in terms of the burden of proof on causation, it adopted the more restrictive motivating factor standard as opposed to the more lenient contributing factor standard that had been affirmed by the Supreme Court just seven years earlier in Fleshner. Third, the WPA, while codifying existing common law, expressly limited any future expansion of these claims. So as a result of these changes, many have considered the WPA to be employer-friendly in the sense of imposing additional restrictions on wrongful discharge claims and limiting, limiting them going forward. Since the WPA's enactment in 2017, there have only been a handful of federal and state decisions applying or interpreting its statutory language. In general, federal courts have tended to apply the statute according to its plain language in a way that suggests that prior cases before the enactment of the WPA have either been abrogated, replaced, or as one court suggested, reduced to the statutory language and nothing more. But with that said, at least one federal court out of the Western District has characterized prior common law decisions as still instructive to interpretation of the WPA. In terms of state court decisions, Missouri appellate courts have not really weighed in all that much, much less decided conclusively whether and or how courts are to apply the language of the WPA in light of pre-WPA cases until this week. In this week's decision, the Missouri Court of Appeals honed in on and emphasized the particular provision of the WPA that states that it codifies existing law. Recognizing that the case before it presented an issue of first impression, the Court of Appeals took a somewhat novel approach to resolving what this provision means and how to apply it to the case before it. The court characterized this codification provision that as a broad retention of the common law exceptions to the at-will employment doctrine. In doing so, the court rejected the notion that the WPA entirely displaces or replaces prior common law decisions and principles. The details of the legal reasoning of this decision are set out in more detail in a blog article we published this week, so please go check that out, but I'll discuss some of it again here. The court ultimately concluded in this week's case that the plaintiff properly stated a cause of action under the WPA. In this case, the plaintiff was a former employee of an automotive repair shop who reported another employee, a coworker, for theft of car parts. This other employee was not a supervisor, a member of management, or an owner. He was just a coworker. And within a week after reporting this theft, the plaintiff was fired. Before the trial court, the employer successfully claimed it could not be held liable because the plain language of the WPA requires one, an employee to report unlawful acts, quote, of the employer, and two, explicitly excludes, quote, an individual employed by a 
employer from the definition of employer. So the Court of Appeals, however, reached a different conclusion and disagreed. It cited to the broad retention of common law principles from cases prior to the WPA, as well as these prior cases themselves. However, what is interesting about these prior cases to which the court cites is that they did not directly or necessarily address or decide the question before the court. Namely, does reporting of coworker or co-employee misconduct as opposed to employer misconduct constitute protected activity? For example, the court cited to a case called Faust. That case actually involved a plaintiff who reported misconduct of two of his quote unquote superiors, even though they were later implicitly characterized by that court as co-employees. But again, this distinction was not necessarily the focus of the court in that case. And in that case, the court ultimately concluded that the plaintiff could not state a claim because the person to whom he reported were the persons engaged or alleged to have engaged in the unlawful act at issue. Similarly, another case cited by the Court of Appeals this week was Drummond. Drummond, however, was decided adversely to the plaintiff on the same principle. A plaintiff cannot engage in protected activity where he alleges the reported misconduct was committed by the person to whom he reported. So ultimately, it is unclear from these cases as to whether they actually reflect an established common law principle, quote unquote, codified by the WPA. And stepping back for a second, the WPA actually incorporates this principle from these prior cases in its definition of protected persons. That is the principle that one cannot engage in whistleblowing where one only reports misconduct to the person alleged to have engaged in the misconduct. So there's no conflict there. However, there does seem to be a conflict between the court's decision this week and the plain language of the WPA, which specifically adds and uses the phrase of the employer when describing the type of acts or misconduct that it covers, unlike prior common law statements that can be found throughout the pre-WPA cases. The big picture takeaway from this decision, however, is that there is fair room for disagreement on the result reached here. It is not an easy question of statutory interpretation to resolve, as the Court of Appeals does raise some interesting points about potential issues with simply focusing on the phrase of the employer in the WPA. We'll see what, if anything, further happens in this case in terms of appeals or requests for rehearing. But that's it for today's episode. And as always, don't hesitate to reach out to a member of our labor and employment team for help with your labor and employment needs or questions. Thanks for listening.